0: Hello and welcome to Made Mother Matriarch with me Louise Perry. I have got an intellectually meaty one for you today. My guest is Dr. Ben Lewis. He's a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Leeds where he specializes in German intellectual history and what we spoke about today was his book on Oswald Spengler who was a German intellectual who was enormously influential in his own day was then largely forgotten, but is seeing something of a renaissance, largely because some of his predictions for um, the shape of the 20th and 21st centuries have been largely vindicated. Uh, The reason I really want to talk to Ben about Spengler is because he is one of the most famous proponents of the civilizational cycles model of history, uh, as opposed to the progressive model of history, which we're all familiar with. He's also a fascinating figure because he seems to be, he seems to be such a prophet you know whether or not that's true this is what this is what we get into including in the extended version of the episode where we spoke about Spengler's relevance to politics today and why uh, some people seem to find him to be such an attractive thinker. That extended version of the episode is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where as always, there's the wholeback catalogue, there's the MMM Chat community, where people have just started leaving dating ads, by the way, if you're in the market, and bonus episodes, as always. Enjoy. So, Ben, should we start by talking about Spengler's biography for people who haven't come across him at all before?
1: Yeah, he's kind of an interesting life in many respects. Son of a a, a postal worker, kind of a a petty bourgeois uh, background, I suppose. Not a particularly happy family background, it has to be said, and uh, all sorts of conflicts within his his family life. And he's clearly... Somebody who from a very young age is, is alienated from the world in, in, in many respects and seems to make up for that by um, two things. On the one hand, reading through through books, so he, he kind of escapes to the library on several occasions. He was a particularly good student, uh, neither as a school student or as a university student and um but he would often disappear to the library for hours on end and and kind of uh, that, that was how he just kind of escape his his family any alienation and then he um on the other hand um, would disappear into these worlds so he would kind of make up uh, entire empires draw ske- sketches for kind of great Germany um even to the point of you know producing price lists and trade figures and all these kind wow. of things. Um, so, yes, yeah, a kind of a, a, an interesting uh, childhood, uh, so not a particularly happy one. Um, and then he essentially gets his abitur, surpasses his A-levels. He has the, the one time in his life that he gets drunk, uh, is 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 on that evening and never again. Uh, I don't know exactly what happens. Uh, we don't have the, <laughs> the evidence, but one can only assume it didn't go particularly well. And then he he uh, he becomes a university student, at Halle, and and the the kind of um, uh, the the approach of, of German students back then was to kind of travel around. So you would you would often just go around, and, and your university choices really would be based upon who's lecturing where, etc. So you would just kind of travel from university to university. He spent a lot of time in Berlin. Um, not a particularly successful student, as I said. Uh, never really kind of settled. I think he started uh, to do uh, f- philosophy uh, and mathematics, but then uh, ended up writing his dissertation on Heraclitus. And then he he then passed to be a teacher. Um, so he had to write a dissertation, which we don't have, which is on um, the the eye within the animal kingdom, the role that uh, played by the the eye in in various animals, and that's a kind of feature of his a philosophy as well later on so on the one hand heraclitus things are constantly in flux things are in constant change and then on the other hand the idea of the significance of the metaphysics of light and uh and and depth perception and so on and then he's he's trained successfully to become a teacher and this story is quite revealing i think of, of spengler as, as an individual, in a sense, a a, a, a pained and tortured individual in some way. So the, the, what happens is he goes to give his first um, lesson in Lunenburg and has a panic attack in front of the mm. building. And um, and that's it's kind of re- revealing. And this isn't, that's, it should be said, this isn't the product of some kind of self-projection on his part, uh, which many of these stories are, to kind of emphasize his loneliness and his genius and his isolation, etc., um, but it actually did happen. And um, the whole thing, the, the point I make about in my book about Spengler's biography and his life in that sense is that it's very important to, in as far as it's possible, to get to the uh, the actual facts of what happened and not just believe Spengler's own uh, uh, interpretation or presentation of those mm. facts uh, in order to cultivate this image of himself as, a as, you know, this all-seeing I this misunderstood Cassandra in. The, you
0: know. I was very uh, amused by uh, the the. You mentioned that um, Spengler had all these busts commissioned of him, multiple busts commissioned of himself. Is that right? Where he's kind of glaring yeah, yeah. <laughs> wisely. Yeah,
1: out. that's right. And, and again, e- even a basic kind of internet search of Spengler, you will you know w- within seconds you will find his his kind of grim visage. Mm um you know and and text optimism is cowardice and you know all these, these wonderful things that the the other quote that we talked about when uh yeah, before this podcast about children, you know, when when cult I think when he says when cultivated or cultured people start to think about having children in terms of pros on pros and cons, that's when you know things that the turning point has been reached. Mm. And again, this grim. Yeah, case, he's, you know, he's uh, uh,
0: extremely quotable. Absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. So, so again, so it's so it's a complicated life. And I say 1880 to 1936, so he he lives through significant uh, historical change as well in. In Germany and, and and within Europe and beyond, and uh, and in that sense, his life is 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 quite revealing and important because so much happens within the space of that of of, of those fifty six years, um, and uh, in, that finds reflection in his own life and times, and his intellectual interest, etc., and and his writings, and that's what really what I try to do is to bring back all of this kind of deeply metaphysical, often convoluted. A historical writing and understanding and try and root it within his times but not simply reduce it to those times either
0: the big text right yeah th- which he was uh famous in his own time was um the decline mm. of the west so how can you talk a bit about how he came to write that and the impact that it had on um uh, his readership
1: what happens is that his we, we spoke briefly about his teaching mm-hmm. career and he at some point he comes into quite a lot of money an inheritance he's able to relocate to munich which again i don't know if, you, if your readers will know or listeners will know a lot about munich but it was a kind of hotbed of hotbed of literary philosophical activity at that time a cosmopolitan interesting place where all sorts of people on the left and the right of the of the political spectrum moved um and he's able to devote his energies during essentially during during world war one uh, to this book and he's he's Kind of inspired by Zeke's uh, book, The Decline of the, the Ancient World. I think that's how it's translated in English, The Decline of the Ancient World. And basically, he has this idea that um, World War One, for which for him is this great world historical uh, event. Right? He describes the August the first as the greatest day in his in world history, not just in his life, but in world history. Is actually not the product of assassinations or even the product in the sense of tensions between the world powers because obviously world war one is something that could have happened in 1908 could have happened in 1912 you know we had the the, the two balkan wars etc so he doesn't see it in those terms he see it as he sees it as preordained um historically by the dynamics underlying what he understand, what he calls the faustian uh, uh, faustian culture in its phase of civilization which we can go on and on and unpack in a second and essentially he claims to he makes the case that this event this 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 conflict was preordained you know a thousand years ago it's it's kind of deeply embedded within the life cycle of the culture within which we we live which is obviously a an enormous claim and despite then late subsequently claiming that he never got anything wrong uh, politically or misread anything uh, it is ba- the, the 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 first preface to the decline of the west contains a passage su- uh, along the lines of may this work stand alongside the great merits or the great services of the german army when it's victorious so he's quite confident as many were at that time that germany would actually win uh, win world war 1 um so that's basically where his starting point and as a result of kind of not, not only his his uh, formal academic training in, in the classics, but his own huge reading. I mean, he was, he, he was an enormous reader, um, voracious reader uh, throughout his life. He then starts to set this in a much bigger historical framework and setting, as many German thinkers try to do, With obviously with the beginning, the, the outset of the work would say I'm going to, now. I'm going to usher in a completely new way of thinking of things. I'm going to turn things on the head. So he calls for what is what he refers to as a Copernican revolution in history in historical science. And the the fundamental point he makes it's it's rather complicated and and kind of multi layered. But essentially, he argues that the history of, uh, of of the West of the Western world, however we understand that, has been completely misconstrued because it's seen well, let's maybe rephrase that slightly. The history of the world actually has been complete, completely misconstrued because it revolves around this idea that the last three centuries of uh, development within the West, so since, broadly speaking, the Enlightenment is kind of the apex of the, of this historical uh, pyramid or triangle, um, and everything else is just a forerunner to that. So you know, t- thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of years of Chinese, Indian, uh, Mexican history, et cetera, is just kind of uh, a nothing or, or at best it's a prelude to our world mm-hmm. today. And he says that, that he likens that to understanding history is uh, uh, thinking that, you know, the, the, the sun revolves around us, essentially. Right. And it's incredibly limited and constrained view of history. And instead of this kind of triad of uh, the antiquity, Middle Ages, modernity, which is again generally speaking how we understand history, he argues for kind of decentering that. So he, he contends that there are eight historical cultures, each of which will, of necessity, because they're entelechies, because they're organisms, they will go through a period of birth, blossoming, decay, and he likens that again to um, the seasons: so the, the spring, summer, autumn winter the winter period known as civilization, uh which is a you can't really just translate that as, that as civilization because in in uh, in english we think of civilizations as things like ancient egyptian civilization or or whatever so it's it's slightly confusing but we can maybe unpack that in terms of what civilization means but essentially that is the, the uh, he means by that the, the the last dying days of a particular culture and he locates this as uh, um he he is of the view that world war one in a sense is indicative it doesn't quite herald but it's 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 highly indicative of the fact that we in the west are in the the winter final days of our thousand year civilization which began uh, in in, uh, 800 900 years previously
0: so does he see a a thousand years as roughly the life expectancy of one of these kind of civilizational organisms
1: absolutely and even to the point where what one of the the, the 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 most interesting features of decline of the west if you open it up this huge thick two volume book but at the start there are um historical tables so he will for, for each of the eight cultures he will provide uh dates periods, so spring summer uh autumn winter and then list uh, philosophers, artistic movements, political movements, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's what's really really interesting about uh, about that is he's able to say that the Enlightenment is not something unique in that sense to uh, Western or Faustian uh, culture. It's actually something that is uh, a a necessary, inevitable outgrowth of a particular culture in its kind of autumnal phase which represents the highest form the highest expression in art in politics in religion in philosophy of that culture so for him in in let's if we just take the west for example he would say that uh it, it's it, it's mozart it's baroque it's the absolutist state it's all these different things those represent the highest form uh of that that the culture mm-hmm. can achieve uh but also at the same time they herald its its apex its it's uh, its highest point and then after that can only set in decline and that's when we get into the period of civilization which again if you think about how we would analyze that in in the west generally speaking most people would say okay so you have the french revolution you have the industrial revolution you have capitalism right uh, but, but for spengler there's nothing new or unique about capitalism I mean, he's, he's very um, uh, dismissive of the idea of capitalism more broadly he basically says in civilization, it doesn't matter what form it takes. It's thinking in money, it's materialism, and that can be found in ancient Egyptian society just as much as it can be found in our society today. And moreover, uh, say, for example, for a culture like uh, ancient China, right? he can then on the, on the basis of his method, he can claim that even where we don't have historical evidence for something, we can on the basis of this morphology this understanding of history as a series of forms fill in gaps that evidence doesn't exist for because we know that in in our culture at this certain point in time we have a thinking in money in this culture in time they had a similar uh, uh, thing that took different expressions obviously but we know now that in china something like that must mm-hmm. have happened and you see that 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 the here the the influence of someone like Goethe and Goethe's morphology of plants where everything can be traced back to a single form, right? Uh, and Spenglet is called the prime symbol or the prime idea that underlines everything that happens within a culture, which is quite difficult to explain, but it basically accounts for all of our actions and ideas and thoughts and expresses itself in all forms of life, whether we're aware of it or not. And he his claim is obviously here, I have grasped this, I'm the first person to do so. And therefore, not only can I fill in the gaps of of, for for ancient cultures for which we don't have historical records, but I can predict the future. And the future in in the West is basically one of war, imperialism, dictatorship, money, um, money and democracy being the same thing in Spengler um, and the rise of the dictators, the age of the Caesars that will arise against that. Uh, and all the rest of it so that's where that's where the, the he kind of ends up with that's the the period we're in now world war one is 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 in keeping with that so and,
0: and that's one of the reasons why Spengler is such an interesting historical figure from our perspective because he was vindicated you know largely um in those predictions but people yeah. at the time did also find him very persuasive is that right and it was a surprise bestseller for this um quite challenging read <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I I, we, I don't think it necessarily speaks to uh, a book that was widely read necessarily mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. I'm pretty sure, you know, most of them just ended up on bookshelves. <laughs> but having said that, a, 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 an array of intellectuals across the world were, were hugely influenced by this book. I think the reason, the initial reason for the success of the book, and this is actually something that annoyed Spengler actually, uh, was was literally the title, right? Because this is written; it, it's published in Vienna in 1918. Spengler doesn't get the uh, the outcome of the war right. He calls that incorrectly, but precisely in this kind of this prevalent uh, atmosphere of of decline, decay, dissolution, disorder, Europe. you know everything's falling apart. Monarchies are collapsing. Uh, people are displaced, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that that really struck a chord with people trying to say, well, what is this Untergang? And Untergang has got this really—it's it, it's it's translated as decline, but it really is, it's more like the Titanic. It's the sinking, the going under, literally of of a of of an entity. And I think that's why it was popular. But then, in terms of politics of the Weimar period and you know, up until the rise of National Socialism. Spengler influences people right across the board. So you've got, you know, the traditional conservative right, uh, Gregor Strasser in particular. Uh, Goebbels was a fan. Mussolini was a fan. Uh, but then even on people on the left, so Gustav Noske, who was the uh, the head of the SPD uh, during the uh, the transition from the, the Kaiserreich to the revolution, uh, he was known as the bloodhound of the revolution. He says, you know, the Spengler's ideas ran in my veins as we destroyed the workers' councils and things like that. So yeah. The, not just in terms of uh, uh, the the sales of the book but the influence it had across the the political spectrum in germany of the time even into the the far the far left of, of, of the spd um, which i've written about elsewhere as well so yeah it's a hugely influ- influential uh, a book not just in terms of intellectual history and reception but also in terms of concretely in terms of germany at the time and i think what that what Spengler was annoyed about by this reception is that uh, he, he was viewed solely as a pessimist, whereas actually he says, those who see my book as pessimistic, and this is something I make a big deal of in, in, my, in, in my book on Spengler, is he, he's seen solely as a pessimist, whereas actually what his project is about is saying only when we understand how bad things are Or, you know, how things have fallen apart. Can we actually, uh, you know, grab the the, the, uh, God by his coattails, as Bismarck once put it, right, as he passes the stage of world history and make Germany the lead, the Rome of the day, right? So Germany will go down uh, as Rome once did in history in both senses of the term, right, as the leading nation that oversees that decline. Um, And I think that's something that was lost.
0: So does he think it's possible to prevent the decline? To, to go back to a, an autumnal period?
1: No. So, so, that, so, so in the sense that one cannot avoid okay. death. I mean, as far as, you know, even today, that's the, that ain't going to happen. It's only, you know, he says there's only two certainties in life. I think in one of his more pessimistic sounding articles in 36, war and death, basically. Okay. Right? And, um, and taxes. So yes, it, it, in that sense, you, <laughs> you cannot turn back mm. the clock, right? And precisely that's his critique of liberalism. Or oh, it's, it's crit- his critique of uh, um, the, the cultural theorists of his time. He, he says that you know we are not in the age of Goethe. He says we Germans will not make and probably not. He says he does he does qualify. He said we will probably not make another Goethe, but we will make we might just make a Caesar, which obviously yeah. what happens in Germany is is a kind of chilling quote, right? So yes, you cannot turn the clock of time backwards, nor can you. He says start with uh, a kind of T loss. And then work towards that. So this is a critique of more of the left it, where you have this idea of we're working towards something, a goal, and we can do that. No, he says we are, uh, our culture is a biological organism. It is in a particular stage of its life. But that doesn't mean you can't do anything. Does that make sense? So you see, it, it doesn't, you, you, just, you can't, it doesn't mean you just have to lie there and die essentially. What he means is, In a sense, this is the most exciting period because this is when the most decisive battles of any culture are fought out between nations and indeed within nations. Right. So this is the context of the German Revolution, et cetera. And he says, yes. So our wiggle room is incredibly limited. But if we if we understand that our only chance is to do something or fall off a cliff, then we can use that limited grip that we've got to influence that history. So Germany can be the ruling uh, uh, power will power at this stage of, of the of our culture. it will eventually go down with the culture we don 't know when we don 't know how well, well, we know how but we don 't exactly when you just leave a gap of two uh, two hundred years and we find ourselves within that two hundred years at the moment <laughs> um, and it's, so it, it's not that, you, that one shouldn't do anything it's that precisely we need to grasp how little we can do or what's necessary to be done. And then we can actually have an, a, a real impact on the world stage so it's but you know one of the the, the books he he uh, writes he has a preface saying look if this convinces the German youth to turn away from poetry and and art and more into politics and the navy and the colonies etc then I've succeeded in my mission so I think it's it's that kind of uh understood does, does that make sense yeah. so it's that it, it it's almost it's weirdly almost like Hegel and Marx in a way as well it's historical uh, insight into necessity, so he's got that in his thought as well. There is something necessary that needs to be done, but it's it, it's obviously got a, a distinctly. Uh, different flavor to that as well right
0: maybe this is the moment to talk about his relationship with Nazism yes yeah. maybe I mean, there's all,
1: there's always, uh... it's kind
0: of the elephant in the room
1: huh it's the elephant in the room and and, and I think in in a sense it's it's a weird one with Spengler again I, I'm not i you you would have seen from my book I'm not exactly a Spengler fan I don't defend him you know but I do try and give him his due and and trying to you know try, give him a, a bit of fair crack of the whip in terms of what he was about. I think one of the re- it's it's very odd to me in in modern Germanic studies and political theory etc that people like Heidegger and Karl Schmidt are so kind of uh, popularized and discussed and and and, and written about and uh, they were bona fide Nazis right uh, Spengler who has a far more complicated relationship to National Socialism uh, as I describe in my book is largely been forgotten um, and I think that's that's worth mentioning. at at the get-go, because as you say, this is the elephant in the room, and it's something that always accompanies Spengler and his reputation. I suppose that the best way to, to approach it would be, what did Spengler find interesting or positive about the Nazis? And what, did he, what was he repulsed by, or what did he find uh, uh, not, not, as, not as, quite as positive? Um, on the, so when it comes to, to, the, to the negatives, Spengler was always weary of uh, biological racism. Mm-hmm as in as espoused by the kind of folkish elements not just of the nazis but various uh, parts of the of the german right in his time right it wasn't just the nazis that were into kind of folkish ideas and he says something about uh measuring skulls so in, even in decline of the west he's he's very critical of this idea that you you uh you measure skulls uh to somehow understand the nature of a past culture which obviously given what i've just said about how he understands history is just a complete nonsense from his idea he says me- measuring skulls is looking at dead history again it's in that kind of um uh linnaean system of uh, understanding nature and not the Goethean approach of living nature morphology forms changing forms etc right so he's, he's incredibly critical of that uh, as an idea and basically he's, he says things like you know those who are obsessed by uh, the concept of race show that they have no race so so what what again so th- this ambivalence which is on the one hand that for spengler race biological race is, is 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 a useless way of approaching the world but he does use the term race in the sense of um the way one would behave the way one would um uh speak and talk etc etc right so there's a certain kind of uh, a certain decency or a certain way of living one's life that is associated with with the way he uses the term like, uh, more like race.
0: culture or something along those lines like how churchill uses race to mean culture more than well, yeah yes it's it, it, it's a complicated
1: yeah. one because even even august babel who was the leader of the spd talks about the uh so the, this this is a, a marxist thinker in the time he talks about the the need for uh, uh to cultivate the race in in terms of the human beings mm. right so it's intimate the rasse in german has a has a very complicated issue i don't unpack this actually in the in the book, but there are there are I mean I, I talk about it in terms of Spengler of course, but not in terms of the, the the term more generally. But for Spengler, yes, it's it's about culture, it's about one the way one behaves, the way one speaks, etc. etc. Which for him is is obviously uh, incredibly important. We didn't talk about the, the influence of Nietzsche, for example, but you know, this idea that you know uh, one must be uh, upstanding, strong, powerful, etc. And, and you know, the, the, one must be a good aristocrat. So he says, for example, that uh you know, I, I was an aristocrat even before I'd read any Nietzsche, right? Um, so this idea that these are the true people that make politics, that the way they behave, the way they speak to each other, again, uh, uh, the forms of, of politics are important to Spengler. But, so he, so he's, he's incredibly critical of that. I do point out in the book, however, that there is a sense in which uh, Spengler has nonetheless a form, has develops a form of what we call, could call essentialism, um or a kind of culture-based racism in a mm-hmm. sense right so again that's worth unpacking because on the it's a paradox on the one hand Schwengler can be seen as quite a progressive thinker right he's saying look there's nothing unique about <laughs> about modern western european people there's a paradox within that paradox too but because we might come back to but essentially we are products of a culture that goes through the same life cycle as anyone else and you know why is Indian culture seen as just a forerunner, as a sideshow, you know, uh, to 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 the main event, which is us, right? So that, so there's that aspect which is in, incredibly uh, important. But when it comes to say the, the Jewish question in Germany in in the 1920s, he is of the view that uh, the Arabs and the Jews are belong to a a culture that, that he describes as Magian culture uh, that basically is completely outdated it has no long it no longer fills any purpose in in modern faustian culture they are form, informed by different two completely different worldviews. and indeed in that sense they are incompatible because shwengler says that the dominant culture will always assert itself right um so he he, he is clearly uh, influenced by this idea of 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 jewish otherness right so he says that the jew the jews are a product of megan culture they they live in a kind of isolated communitarian way, which is not the way people live in, in Western culture. And he says, well, you know, the more serious ones of them will assimilate, but the rest, you know, that the, they, they really don't matter in that sense. So there's this there's a kind of a difficulty in, in, in the way he poses these questions.
0: Does he think that the uh, Magian culture is in a different point in its civilizational cycle? Does he see it as an alternative that it's in its it, that it's already fallen, basically?
1: Exactly. So, so that, okay. that's a really good question because again, so th- th- these cultures they are they are broadly that they're temporarily distinct, but they also overlap. Yeah. Okay. So for him, Megan culture basically, right, is 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 done and dusted. So that, that 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 was a thousand. So it's it's kind of in the in its di- It's been in its dying days for a long mm-hmm. time, but it's it doesn't mean that it's completely gone away. Mm-hmm. So it's able to it's able to survive in, in certain pockets across the world. But yes, its its day is, is is run. Right. That's 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 kind of almost ancient history now. And I think that's that's a, that's a really important point as well about how he he views these things. So, again, it's not it's a culture that is almost not even worth discussing in the sense because it's gone. So he says he talks about dead trees, you know, dead trees can outwardly seem alive for thousands of thousands of years. But there's nothing mm. there. Just, it's just a dead tree. And so. You've got this, this, this two-sidedness. On the one hand, the, uh, the rejection of biological race, but then a certain essentialism that is involved with, you know, Jewish thinking, Arab thinking, Muslim thinking, Magian thinking, is, it has to be essentialist. Also, in the same way, that it has to be essentialist that we or, you know, you and I, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, our true uh, drive is the quest for the infinite right that's our underlying uh, prime symbol and that may manifest itself in you in a particular way in particular interests and um, with me and others right but that that's why we are we speak a different language to people even in our time right who may live down the street but live but are actually the magians are, are he, he says uh, defined by the 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 the, the the symbol of the cave so it's this kind of seclusion and separation that um, that informs that so that's the that's the tricky one with, with spengler and, and race and racism and, and and concretely in terms of the jewish question the paradox within the paradox of course is also that he does clearly see something distinct about uh, modern faustian culture because again it's it says only now that we have this particular symbol can we understand history for the first time mm. Do so you see the paradox. Mm. So there is something unique about us, mm. actually, right? Megan culture could never understand world history, but we could because of our quest for the infinite. And Spenger comes along and, and, you know, dots the I's and cross, crosses the T's. Right. So there's the, within that, too. So I just wanted to point that out. It's, it's quite um, it's quite complicated. But I think that's also worth mentioning. There is something he sees, you know, just as Hegel would see uh, something unique and distinct about bourgeois society, Marx, about capitalism. You know, there's a similar kind of uh, approach there. Uh, which he argues that he's freed himself from but he hasn't. But in terms of the the Nazis and and, and what he would welcome in them well clearly you know, he, as as i point out one constant feature of his philosophical writing and his politics which goes through all sorts of changes in his life and his career is ardent german nationalism right he is uh, you know and, and more concretely what he describes as prussianism so a particular uh, form of German nationalism, so the Prussian dominant uh, Kaiserreich, the, the, the way it kept German, modern Germany came to being under the dominance of Prussia and Prussian. You know what do we associate with Prussia? Military discipline, aristocratic virtue. You know all this kind of stuff, right? So that's his. Uh, that's where he's going from uh, in terms of his his, his overall world view. And clearly, when it comes to um, things like the the 1918 19 revolution. Uh, he is he is on the side of of the right, yeah? and the the German right at this time is incredibly complex. But Spengler's natural home, I think, is more with people like Hugenberg, the the press magnate, uh, and the people in the right wing who are against. They they absolutely despise Weimar democracy, right? They want to see that constitution overthrown from the right. They do not like democracy. For Spengler, as soon as democracy comes about, it's either the rule of capital. Right? So for Spengler, democracy is basically mm-hmm. money and, and the idea that a few uh, plutocrats basically, as in Rome, tell the masses what to do. They don't even know what they're doing. It's bread and circuses, etc. It's a complete waste. It's, it's, not, it's anti-politics in that sense. Right? For Spengler, we talked about absolutism and, and, uh, and the abs- that, that's real politics. right? He's, he's dead against the, the, the Weimar project from, from the outset. He hates that, that uh, project and that leads him to uh, come into contact with people like the National Socialists. But for him, the terms left wing and right wing are kind of inverted in a sense. So anything that's, that, that's a party form or is, involves the masses, involves rallies, involves demonstrations, that's left wing. It doesn't matter what the politics are, right? Whether it's calling mm-hmm. for world revolution or you know the, the death to the Jews. It, this is, The problem with this is, is actually the fact that it's mass politics
0: mm-hmm.
1: and for him, that was also a, another issue he had with the National Socialists is what their their emphasis on uh, um, the, the, the mass mobilizations, demonstrations, which they kind of took actually and stole from the history of the left in Germany, right? So what, if you read Mein Kampf, one of the uh, things that Spe- that Hitler, sorry, is is both attracted to and repulsed by is Austrian Social Democracy with its demonstrations it's newspapers it's banners and and all the rest of it so for Spengler that's kind of that when you get into the territory of this isn't politics Mm -hmm. anymore right so in in a sense that the Nazis were too left-wing for Spengler
0: (laughs) there we go (laughs) which is a strange way of putting it but but he was he was allergic to the populist element
1: yeah that that's right That, that that's and and that's why again these things are they're always kind of What's interesting as well, again, I show this in some detail, is the role of accident and misreading in terms of Spengler's understanding of national socialism as well, because for him, he thinks that Mussolini is far more of the Caesarist model that he has in mind that will emerge from these politics and will emerge from these struggles and will be the necessary leader to take Mm -hmm. things forward, right? So again, this is a trend that Spengler sees in politics because if you think that uh, politics is uh, or democracies are just moneyed interests and the press you know lying to the people telling them what to do each day by day then the the kind of logical conclusion that as as happened in rome to some extent is that democracy power is is concentrated in fewer and Mm. fewer hands which for spengler isn't a bad thing because it kind of returns politics to where it should be Right. Um, But then it's the leaders that emerge from that. So he he even sees, for example, say someone as Lenin. He doesn't like Lenin, but he sees Lenin as one of these Caesarist type people that's able to rule as he sees it, not through his party, but in spite of his party. Right. Ditto Mussolini for him. The great thing about Mussolini is that he consults with business interests. He's not too interested in in the masses. Apparently, again, I think it's largely based on a misreading. And then he has this meeting with Hitler, which is which is arranged by uh, actually some British uh, um, fascists that live in that live in Germany names of whom I forget. But they're in the book. And uh, yeah, there's this discussion with Hitler about politics. And one of the things that Spengler is concerned about is precisely the, the the mass of the party, the the SA, you know, all of these institutions that have helped Hitler to where where he is what 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 spengler again in fit fittingly calls the Praetorian guard right, and the irony is is that actually the the, the one event that leads to really the ultimate estrangement it's co- several things happen, but the ultimate estrangement between spengler and national socialism is occasioned. By the uh, the room putsch, right, and and the Night of the Long Knives, and Hitler's precisely making his party not a populist democratic org- organization in any way, but actually seizing the reins of power, you know, along with a few allies, right. And what happens in that? I don't know if you read this in the book, Louise, but what happens in the uh, in that putsch is that Spengler loses one of his best friends. He's murdered not because he's involved with Roehm or the SA. But because his his uh, his name sounded very similar to another Willy Schmidt, who had a T on the end of his name instead of just a D, right? Uh, a, a musician friend of Spengler's, and that just breaks him. You know the the the, the and Gregor Strasser, who again another friend of Spengler's, uh, Nazi seen as more on the left of the party, is is killed in those uh, in those purges as well. Spengler had enormous correspondence with Strauss. had to burn most of it. We've got some letters that I refer to in the book. So that that was a real turning point for him, I think. And then he kind of withdraws into kind of seclusion and uh, uh, and frustration. I think with uh, with, with, uh, with with what had happened with National so Socialism. So he
0: doesn't see that, you know, decisive behaviour on the part of Hitler as as a as the act of a Caesar. He doesn't interpret it in that way.
1: That, that's right. So, so he, he doesn't see Hitler as, as the kind of Caesar mm. figure. But the paradox is, is that precisely the kind of things in Mussolini that he's extolling as Caesarist in nature, i.e. that you move against your own party. Parties are left wing. It doesn't matter mm. what they say. They are, they, are, they are manifestations of decadent democracy. Right. Whether they call for the Socialist Republic or the fascist, that they are decadent. Right. You cannot do politics with parties. So the, 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 do you see the irony here? The irony is that he's calling for these kind of measures to be mm. taken actually against the SA. But when they happen, he's
0: appalled. Right, he's yeah. actually horrified.
1: Yeah. You know, so so he says uh, there's a quote t- towards the end of his life. I think it's in a letter where he says, you know, we want we were against parties. We we're against all parties but, and we got rid of the parties, but the worst one was mm. left over. Right, so that's that's the kind of um, that's the so, so there is this as I said, there's a there's a contingency here. There I do make the case that had things turned out differently, had Willy Schmidt uh, been killed instead of Willy Schmidt, <laughs> Spengler could have. It, it's po- quite possible that Spengler could have come to terms with the Nazi regime on some level. They did court him for a very long time, particularly Goebbels, to speak uh, publicly on behalf of the or, or to speak not on behalf of the regime, but to kind of give his seal of approval mm-hmm. to the regime, right? I argue that things could have uh, turned out differently for sure. And that, you know, Spengler in in, in one of his, in his last major seller political uh, uh, book that is often seen as a critique of national socialism, it's not really a critique of national socialism. And to the extent that it is a critique of national socialism, it's based on a kind of misreading of what the Nazis are about or, or taking their rhetoric as a, 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 a face value, essentially. So concretely, uh, Spengler says that, you know, uh, the German, one of the problems with the new German regime is it gives this idea that we can live in a peaceful world. And actually, if you go back and look at the early Nazi regime's rhetoric, it says we don't want war. <laughs> we, we, but it's secretly they're, out, they're rearming but it's it's this kind of sad almost uh, example of Spengler kind of really getting is uh, getting things wrong when it comes mm. to um, understanding the Nazi mm, regime mm. so yeah it's it's it, it, it's complicated as they say and it takes on many different forms and layers and that's one of the things that I do in that in that final chapter is to say well you know what what was going on here could it have been uh, different and I, I, I borrow from the words of uh, uh, the post-war German Chancellor Helmut Kohl to say that Spengler really had the blessing of an early death right because he dies in 36 and I think um, that probably saves him to some extent although as I pointed out earlier he's still seen in the shadow of national socialism and that partly explains his
0: but he didn't have to yes witness the real outcome of Uh, do, do you think that I mean you also write about the fact that for instance he was he 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 sort of extols the virtues of militarism on the one hand, but that he himself is desperate yeah. not to be drafted, and is like yeah quite physically timid, kind of in the same in the same a... way that Nietzsche was as well. It's, it seems to be a bit of a pattern.
1: Absolutely, no, absolutely. It's uh, it always makes me kind of uh, laugh. And again, it's it, it's it's not as if I'm saying hey, it's it's okay to be uh, hugely pro-militarist as long as you kind of lift weights <laughs> yes. and you know so you're ready to go out and you know <laughs> die at <laughs> it misses the point yeah. entirely, but it it is always this kind of strange paradox in the sense that yes, he, he, he during World War One, if you read his correspondence, World War One again is not a good time for him. He loses uh, his his brother in law, his sister commits suicide. Uh, obviously, his dreams of Germany uh, uh, emerging as some kind of power immediately don't come to fruition. What I also should have mentioned is, as well is that um, he puts a lot of his inheritance money that bankrolled. Um, decline of the west he puts that into uh german state military bonds that obviously don't come back with any return at all so it's it's, it really is a time of suffering for him this war but nonetheless he clings to this idea that yes germany you know we have to win this war this war is the greatest thing that's ever happened and so yeah it's 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 very strange and i think as you say you you see that with all sorts of 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 figures and you know uh, today perhaps even especially today i don't know it's a, it's a strange
0: one yeah it's a, it's a trope i think um yeah the yeah. kind of the intellectual cheerleader who doesn't quite mean it maybe i mean uh, yeah. which is which is a question i guess you know the fact that he's so disillusioned by the knife of the long knives you know he 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 longs for caesarism and then when he gets it he doesn't like it do you think that he, do you think that he yeah. didn't quite he didn't quite mean it or that there was some in a conflict going on
1: there. It's 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 a difficult question to is to 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 answer mm. posthumously, and that's it because we don't have writings. And again, Spengler's one of these intellectuals that will never. You know, I, again, I, in the conclusion of the book, I quote him saying, "You know, I can basically say that I got I got nothing wrong, nothing of significance. <laughs> did I did I misinterpret or get wrong? I got mm-hmm. everything right." And I think, in in a sense, the the way he would account for this is basically to say, "Well, we got." we kind of got caesarism but not really because it was always the nazis that even when they were behaving more in in a caesarist ruthless kind of anti-democratic way they were always these kind of upstarts and jokers they weren't true statesmen right so he talks about um uh, the the nazis the the way they would kind of instrumentalize their hitler for example alongside bismarck and frederick great and everything and he would say yes two great minds and a and a moron, basically, you know, they again, this is all in his correspondence. So, I think you know that that's what he, that's how he would try and account for it, and that's how he tr- does try to account for it in his correspondence. Because, again, at a certain point, then he, he cuts off writing entirely, I think it's too dangerous, and he kind of returns to uh, really interesting studies on ancient history, etc., which kind of was his forte. Um, but I think that's how he would account for it. But to me, that doesn't really add up, and in that sense, he is, I think culpable is part of this general move towards the the intellectual and political environment of the time that fed into national so in that sense he is he was a national socialist right and um but yeah for him i think somebody you know gustav von caro again was murdered by the nazis in the, a kind of more traditional right-wing uh, but ve- but very right wing. I mean, we're not just talking, you know, uh, centre right. Um, you know, incredibly anti democratic, you know, authoritarian, et cetera, et cetera, But not maybe in the form that uh, that 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 uh, was represented by Hitler. But again, the point is, you know, if you, it doesn't really matter who's doing these kind of things. If that's if they, if they are enacting these these changes, that they they're going to be the same. They're going to have a very similar outcome, aren't they? Whether they're Mussolini or Hitler, it's uh, you know. I'm sure you can find this nuances between the two of them but you know ultimately,
0: mm-hmm. right. Can we talk some more about the the sort of cyclical model of history that he that he's sure. um presenting because he he's writing again I mean he's not alone in doing this which we should, which we should mm-hmm. we should discuss further but he's writing against sure. I guess a kind of Christian view of history from which I think so many of of our contemporary ideas about progress are derived the idea of there being this mm-hmm. kind of linear model he's he he completely yeah. rejects that is that right
1: yeah yeah so and again i i don't think the target is solely christianity i think it's also uh, german historicism mm-hmm. so again the dominant understanding of uh, of historical development was you know leopold von ranke and people like these again the products of the autumn, i suppose of uh, mm. of <laughs> um, western culture right the incredibly informed studies but this this idea of causality so it's not just progress it's also this kind of chain yeah. of events so you can see, as we talked about with World War I, there's an assassination, there's there's Africa, there's France, there's Germany, there's Britain, you go back and then you the foundation of Germany and blah, blah, blah. That that kind of understanding, he says, it, it doesn't even scratch the surface of historical events. Also in terms of analogy. So we always have analogies, right? Oh, the, the, the way ex-politicians behaving is a bit like Caesar or is a bit like Churchill at this point, in the, whatever. He he says, that's, you know, often analogies in, in history they, they can be right but they're right for the wrong reasons if that makes sense right so they're superficially they, they make sense but they don't really understand both the function and the location of a particular figure or movement within the overall life cycle of a culture, culture does that make sense yeah, yeah yeah so it's 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 not it's, it's 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 complicated because it's not just against that causality and and you know the triad of uh, antiquity middle ages modernity It's also saying that if we really want to understand history, we need analogy, we need comparison, but on a a completely different level. So, for example, you know, um, many people might not see the connection between Muhammad, uh, the Stoics and the Reformation. Right. (laughs) There's a parallel that's often not drawn, but Spengler says, not necessarily in their function, but in terms of their positioning in the summer, right, yeah, yeah. late summer or to, of, of their respective cultures, there is this tend towards Purit- Purita- puritan Puritanism, Purit- Puritanical yeah, behavior, yeah, yeah. let's say, uh, that, that is reflected in these three movements, yes. right? So, that, so that's the, so he's not breaking with, uh, completely with historical uh, methods in terms of rancor, historicism and analogy, but trying to give them a completely new basis by switching the, the focus i this copernican mm. revolution
0: but but does he offer a kind of material explanation for why these cycles would occur
1: no so it's it's completely so again material material uh thinking rationalism the way that we know because again a lot of these things you you would you can kind of nod along to and make sense you say that kind of makes sense superficially right you would say that all cultures are, are uh, uh characterized by materialism and markets and money in their winter phase okay but you know can you talk of capitalism within ancient egypt generalized commodity production you know that would be a materialist objection that Mm. i would make right it's just it's just a nonsense you can't it's a completely different society okay there might be markets and money but is it really you know like Mm. like today no i don't I, i would say but spengler would argue no that's materialist thinking you're just unconsciously reflecting the uh, the prejudices and ideas of your particular time, i.e. Western civilization, to account for something that you can't even begin to understand, right? So no, it's not a material, it's metaphysical. And maybe we should spend a little bit of time on metaphysics. Yeah, because it uh... is
0: one of the most, it's one of the, the strangest bits of his work to a mon reader.
1: It's very odd. And again, metaphysics is not my forte. I tend to read it. So, you know, I, I basically make the case that there are two ways in which the kind of West can the West can be read metaphysical and uh, political mm-hmm. historical. Right. And the political history stuff. Yeah, it's insightful, makes a lot of sense to me, I'm sure for you as well. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really in- you know, I've never thought about Muhammad and the Stoics before. That's, you know, that, that's interesting. But the metaphysical is basically that essentially we are all let's talk about it in terms of children. right? We both have young kids. When you're on a swing, and you sometimes think that if you just go a little bit further up, you might just grab the sun, or you might just grab the moon, or whatever. You know, so there's something that's, uh, you know when you're young, mm-hmm. you think, okay, that's possible. But Spengler argues once we get to that stage, like the child reaching out for something it can't reach but thinks it can reach, we inherit, right? Again, stick with me because this, <laughs> this is complicated. We inherit and and a particular uh, sense of depth perception and an understanding of the world, right? which is then not only inherited once we do that in terms of the way our culture accounts of it, but it's kind of socially reinforced continually over and over again in the way we move through the world and the world appears to us, right? That basically is informs all of our, and more importantly, all of our cultures, artistic, cultural, political, social forms. It th- This idea, so that the bridge between what is and, and, and the, the symbol of what that is, right? The bridge between the two that takes different forms in like radically different forms in each particular culture, right? So, in the early days, let's take for example the, uh, the example of Gothic cathedrals. So this is the early days of modern Faustian culture, argues Spengler, right? The Gothic cathedral is basically this kind of um, unconscious, unplanned desire to you know go, go as high as possible to reach out into the, to the infinite etc right a completely new form of architecture which is implemented and, and gone about in a way that the uh, uh, you know a, a happy child in a sense will go about their lives without thinking twice about what they're doing mm. does that make sense you just go about your life you do what you do what you do only then when you get start to get a bit old you think why do we do this or why did i do that or what you know, That you start to ask questions right usually Again, I'm stretching the analogy slightly here, but usually in your teenage years, right, the world doesn't, isn't quite as beautiful as maybe it's been mm. made out. You have to start accounting for the world around you. And it's, in a sense, that's what Spengler says happens to cultures. So in the early days, you have this spontaneous outburst, this expression, this giving life to this idea that, we, that underlines our culture that we've been brought up with, whether that's the cave, whether it's the infinite, or whether it's the corporeal and the static and the close, the, the, the proximate, as in uh, um, classical art. So he talks about the, the scobulus of Myron, uh, this kind of thing of the, the, the sculptor trying to, th- just before the moment of throwing the discus, right? It's this uh, this focus on stasis. I'm, I'm trying to... doesn't work so well on audio,
0: but... <laughs> Yes. It doesn't work so well. It, it's,
1: apologies to, to the people listening. Uh, th- this focus on stasis, etc., that is, is an example of a, a spontaneous expression of uh, of the, the ancient worlds or Apollonian cultures' uh, underlying prime symbol, right? And then what happens then across the life cycle of a culture, so we slip back, switch back to modern Faustian culture, is that you have these Gothic cathedrals, for example, as a spontaneous expression. But as time goes on, they start to become slightly more theorized, right? And you get this move away from kind of natural, as Spengler would understand it, or spontaneous life, which is mainly rural in nature, right? And in in that sense, more more innocent, quote unquote, in the sense that it's just living out an unthought and uh, largely unprocessed life. But then, as as the forms exhaust themselves, people then start to think, okay, is this really? They start to think, well, why why these gothic Mm. cathedrals, right? So why why are we doing that? Then then he switches to to summer and he he locates then changes in religion. So this is where I think is important about your point about Christianity. Spengler would say that Christianity in the in the east is completely different to Christianity in uh, the modern west because not because of any cultural or material or political differences in those two societies but because because they're informed by a completely different way of viewing mm-hmm. the world. They cannot but be different, right? But as things go on, then you get to you, you approach, say, uh, the, the age of philosophy. So late summer uh, or, or or early autumn. I talked about the Puritans. Right. And, and the Reformation is this, this idea that basically the spontaneous forms that were expressed in the spring period. People are thinking now, well, actually, is this the right way to do things? Because, you know, if you think about the, the Reformation, it's kind of against the excesses perceived of the Catholic Church, et cetera is this really, people start thinking, is this really how we want to live our lives? Is this really the true expression of Mm. our being, if you like, our our underlying essence? Then you get to autumn. And this, again, one of the the great points I think Spengler makes is that in, in the autumn of philosophy, for example, you know, you get Goethe, Schiller, I mean, mainly German focus, I apologize, Hegel, Kant. These people are starting to use reason and rational but it's not yet on the level of winter rationalism in terms of thinking in money it's actually thinking what is the the best the most rational rational and reasonable way of understanding god does that make sense so we've gone from this you know this this spontaneous expression of of an idea that that informs us all to then thinking about okay what's the best way to access this this particular form that we we might see as god we might not right but it's still framed within those forms it's only then once those have been exhausted the kind of high point that the forms break down and and uh, what spengler society calls societies formless they're characterized by a formlessness which will only increase as time goes on which again kind of informs this idea that we need says spengler a strong ruler to preside over this because everything becomes a kind of formless mm. blob now right? it's just it's just a mass that needs to be held together in some way does, does that make sense so it's this it's so there's an underlying idea but it goes through a particular development as we would as human beings i suppose as well and the way i think about it is ch- ch- in childhood uh and, and teenager life etc that can be quite a useful way of thinking about it but it is rather complex yeah so
0: you have this okay to simplify horribly you have this period of kind of Useful adventure, exuberance, lack of self reflection, which then becomes yeah. ever more self critical until you reach this winter stage where actually there's a sort of complete loss of faith in the whole project of your civilization. Yeah, which I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, if Spengler had lived to the 1960s, he surely would have felt he may not have been vindicated. You know, by German politics, but he, he was vindicated in the sense yeah. of people having a real or well, in a sense, it's almost sort of it's like a he's almost predicting postmodernism, isn't he? This like endlessly self-referential, yeah. you know, com- complete lack of uh, original spark in a culture
1: absolutely absolutely that's that's a really good point because it and he says he then has a theory as to why that is he says we know more and more and more and more and more about less and less and less and less. yeah so yes. that's his kind of critique of academia right and and exactly so he gets to the point he says the way he would he would explain this whether he's vindicated or not i'm not sure but the way he would account for that is to say well look we get to a point where the forms are exhausted he says it's it, it's basically um he, he, he describes civilization, the winter period, as kind of a living entity and its mummy, or a living entity and its corpse, its mummified. It cannot produce anything mm. new or vital, or because all those all those attempts to do that, they've gone in terms of our culture, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, maybe he talks at, at some point about Russia maybe emerging as the new culture after the kind of the West. And you, that's, that's really interesting as well, the ideas he has on that. But that would then go through its own particular birth and blossoming, etc., etc., right? But he says for us, no, this is, this is we are done. You know, we, there's nothing fundamentally new culturally, and artistically. And he says, you know, uh, he, he says, l'art pour l'art, the sort of art for the sake of art is basically a sport. It's just a, you know, mm. um, whatever you whatever you think of that. In that sense, yes, he he is um, he he kind of anticipates uh, postmodern uh, discussions and and outlooks. Absolutely.
0: Next step collapse, right? That's that's the only place yeah. uh, left to go. He, am I right? He's very, yeah. even though as you say, he doesn't have this sort of um, myopic view of classical history as being the only important history. He is very preoccupied with the fall mm. of Rome.
1: Yes. And I think that's that's both a methodological flaw and a perhaps a reflection of where things were at with the sources, et cetera, et cetera. Because I generally, th- I, again, I'm not an, an expert on ancient history, but I do know uh, that there are people who, for example, today around the Oswald Spengler Society that will work on uh, using Spengler's approaches to these ancient cultures with a lot more evidence at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Which again raises a question of, well, do you really need the evidence anyway if you're true Spranglerian? Because, hey, it's about intuition. It's about feeling. It's about Goethe. It's not about uh, Linnaeus or, you know, it's, it's c- categorizing, et cetera. So, that's that. That's I think um, one of the reasons. So if we want to be fair to Spengler. Maybe that's why. But I think also it's a um, it is a it is a kind of blind spot in his in his approach, or it's a, it's a methodological limitation because for him, base you know if you read the book, you've got these tables and uh, and all the rest of it. But essentially, it's it, the, the, it's the, the, the almost the entirety of it is is a kind of juxtaposition of uh, Greece and Rome, right? The Apollonian culture uh Greece representing the summer and autumn essentially of that culture, Rome then emerging as this you know this this military power etc., uh, et cetera et etc um and art on our world today and again there's there's some lovely insights into the the, the differences between you know uh, um classic sculpture sculpture, and modern music you know and he says if you want to understand the difference between the uh the, the feelings underlying those two cultures look at look at the difference between say Bach and a and a, and a sculptor from from the, the classical world right um but I yes I do, I do think the focus is 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 Rome um also yeah for maybe a lack of evidence and also just the fact that you know basically all history up until up this not really all history but a lot of western uh intellectual history was focused mm-hmm. on on Rome and and Greece right I mean that's that's um... I don't know would be the case.
0: You've just finished listening to the first part of this episode. It's not over yet. There's an extra half an hour or so, which is um, behind the paywall, which you can access at louiseperry.substack.com and where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Every paid subscription makes an enormous difference to my ability to produce the show, to to pay my producers, to do all the things necessary to put out a regular podcast. If you're not able to sign up for a paid subscription, but you value what we're doing, you can support the show in other ways. You can tell people about it. The word of mouth factor is really important. You can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can uh, like the videos on YouTube. All of these things make an enormous difference to my ability to grow the show. Thank you so much.